Well, most people do not know it, but the book of Daniel is the source of many phrases that many of us use all the time. Uh, Maybe you have at one point said that someone has feet of clay. That's from Daniel chapter 2. Maybe you have experienced a family crisis and you have said about it, it feels like I am being thrown into a a fiery furnace. That's Daniel chapter 3. Sometimes people at work will find themselves saying, I feel like I'm about to walk into a lion's den. Anyone ever said that one at work? That's uh, Daniel chapter 6. Well, Daniel chapter 5, which is our text for today, actually gives us three more of those familiar phrases. How many times have either you said or you've heard someone say something about the writings on the wall or, or weighed in the balance and found wanting or their days have been numbered? All those phrases come from Daniel 5. Now, last week, if you're here, you'll remember that we, we saw how the insanity of pride puts us into opposition with God and how that is a place that no sane person should want to be. Today, we're going to take that a step farther. We're going to see where pride ultimately takes us, and, in, and it takes us to the place of God's judgment. It's now the year 539 BC, maybe 30 years after the events of Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for over 20 years, and whatever hopes there were for reformation and, and justice are, are all gone. Died, they died with him. In fact, the kingdom of Babylon is just about to collapse. We'll see this, but the very last verse of chapter 5 tells us that the Persians are about to conquer Babylon, that their armies are camped outside the walls of the city as the events that we're going to study this morning are taking place. God's judgment is about to fall on the great Babylonian empire. Now, there's a man named Belshazzar on the throne, and the writer paints his character for us in just a few deft strokes. We, we are told that as all this is about to happen, he is throwing a party. It's a lavish party. There are about a thousand nobles that are there. You can imagine the scope and the expense of this party. And in the first four verses, there is one verb that gets repeated five times to tell us what the main activity of this party was. See if you can pick that verb out as I read verses one through four. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, what verb keeps getting repeated? Drink. That's what was going on. And it might not occur to us that this is unusual, but it was. In that time, there were also women there. That wasn't the custom at an ancient royal banquet. But these are all women from the king's harem, his wives and his concubines. They're drinking too, and they would be there for just one purpose. We're about to see a picture of a culture on the cliff edge of collapse. God's judgment is about to crash down on Babylon. And as we look at this picture, I want you to be thinking about what it says to where we as a people are today. You know, one day as a nation, we may face judgment like this. Some people believe that we are facing it even now. 
Whether or not that's the case, though, the truth is all of us personally can find ourselves facing a circumstance like this if we choose to rebel against God for long enough. And so I want you to think about three things from this text this morning, three things that you should do when God's judgment looms. Here's the first one. Go ahead and write it down. Number one, don't compromise your integrity. Now, this writer is using fairly restrained language, but he makes it very clear that Belshazzar is giving free reign to any appetite he wants to indulge, and he's encouraging everyone around him to do the same. Have you ever noticed this reality that sin always follows this law of diminishing returns? We all know that habitually indulging in any appetite, it gets boring after a while. This has happened to Belshazzar, and so he decides to spice things up. He remembers these goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had taken decades earlier, symbols of Babylon's power over the nations they had conquered, but they were still considered sacred things, and maybe out of respect for the conquered peoples, and maybe out of fear uh, of the gods of those peoples, they, they had been kept in a place um, where they weren't being used. These had never been used for anything other than the worship of the God of Israel. But Belshazzar arrogantly decides to take the edge off the boredom by using these vessels in a drunken orgy in order to mock the Jewish God. If you look at verse 2, the beginning might be interpreted while he was under the influence of wine, he gave orders to bring in the goblets. And the implication is that alcohol prompted him to do what he would never do otherwise. I'm going to say a word briefly about this. Christ followers hold different views on alcohol. I, I grew up in a tradition that totally abstained from alcohol, and I uh, still have that commitment. I practice it still out of personal conviction. But at the same time, we know that the Bible gives freedom to use alcohol in moderation. Psalm 104.15 says that God gives wine to gladden the hearts of man. In the New Testament, we know Jesus turned water into wine, and we know Jesus actually drank wine. His enemies falsely accused him of drinking too much. That said, however, it would be dishonest to pretend that alcohol abuse has not caused untold suffering in this world. And this writer wants us to understand that this was part of Belshazzar's sin. Some of you know what this means in your own life. Some of you understand from personal experience how destructive addictions can be. And so I just want to say, as we are getting into this chapter, if you wrestle with this, if you think that you might have a problem, get help. Don't let this destroy your life. We have an amazing Celebrate Recovery ministry here at Southwinds. And it is open to anyone who struggles with hurts and habits and hangups of, of any kind. It is a place where you can go and you can find uh, hope and help and healing. And so if this is you, stop denying, stop pretending. Let us know how we can help connect you to CR. Let us know how we can help you. Maybe this is not you, but maybe you have a person in your life and, it, and they struggle in, an, in one of these areas and they need an intervention. Well, let us know then. We would love to be able to try to help. Now, maybe this is not you at all. Maybe this is not your area, but every one of us has an area in which we are tempted to compromise our integrity. We need to be reminded from this where God's judgment looms. We must not be proud we must not think that we will escape because God's judgment ultimately falls on sin that's not repented. Now, in this case, there is going to be a very dramatic intervention. 
Let's keep reading. I'm going to read verses 5 all the way down to verse 16. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, Make sure that you enter into this. Make sure that you let your imagination color in some of the details that we are reading here. This is an amazing scene. It's a, it's a strange, weird scene. It's almost like a scene from, from Harry Potter. You know, out of nowhere, the fingers of this big human hand appear, and there's not an arm, there's not a body attached, just a hand, and it starts to write in the plaster on the wall. Now, Rembrandt painted a very famous picture called Belshazzar's Feast that captures the scene. And you have to try to imagine what's going on in the king's mind. I mean, maybe he wonders if he's had a little too much Merlot and maybe, maybe it's time to switch to Starbucks, you know, maybe, maybe. But then he realizes it's not an imaginary thing. The words are real and he's terrified. Actually, the Hebrew phrase translated, his legs gave way, is more literally translated, his loins were loosed. And some scholars believe it indicates that uh, he needed to change his underwear. (laughs) Now, King Belshazzar does what most people do. He turns to the resources of his culture. He calls in the important people, the powerful people, the wise people. He asks for their advice, but you see, no one can help him. No one has answers. It's a lot like today when many people in our culture are discovering that science and and politics and chasing personal fulfillment just cannot meet the deepest issues of life. 
This king is terrified. But then the queen, who's probably Belshazzar's mother, remembers an old advisor of Nebuchadnezzar's. And so Belshazzar sends some men and they, they track him down. They, they get him out of bed in the middle of the night and Daniel is brought into the midst of this room. And again, do not miss the drama of this moment. You need to understand, uh, when we first met Daniel, and for us it was just a few weeks ago in chapter one, Daniel was a young man, probably a teenager, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It is now, in chapter five, over 60 years later. Daniel is an old man in his 80s, and he probably moves slowly. His hair is likely gray. I see him carrying himself with dignity. See, we've, we've known him when he was a young, strong man. We've known him when he was at that time the right-hand man of the most powerful king on earth. But now he's been thoroughly discarded. Belshazzar treats him with arrogance and condescension, and it's not immediately evident in English. It's very, very clear in the Hebrew text. Are you Daniel, one of the exiles? See, he's trying to put him in his place, one of the slaves. Two times he says, I've heard of you, but he's really saying, I've never seen the proof. These are probably just made up stories. So here we have this king, and you think about what's happening here. He is throwing a massive party while there is a massive army encamped outside the walls of his city. He's about to lose his kingdom. He's about to lose his life. Actually, this king is a joke because he doesn't want to hear the truth. He doesn't want to hear the truth about himself. He doesn't want to hear the truth about God. Daniel, I think, looks around and one glance tells him what's been going on in this room, that this king, charged by God to serve the people, is serving only himself. I think there had to be a moment when Daniel looks and he sees these gold and silver goblets from the temple, and maybe he realizes that he hasn't seen those since he was a boy. And maybe Daniel thinks of his home from which he's been exiled his entire adult life. And maybe he remembers what it was like to worship in God's temple as a boy, gathered together with God's people, those vessels that cost his people so much to create, now being used, now being used not for the worship of God, but he sees, well, he sees what they were being used for. And he stands before this king who trashed his career, who forgot his people, who blasphemed his God, this king who sees the writing on the wall and he asks Daniel to tell him what it means and he kind of flippantly, pridefully tells him, I'll give you some presents. But Daniel's really not interested. Look at what verses 17 to 19 says. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. Do you hear it? Daniel is bluntly answering Belshazzar's arrogance. He doesn't need his gifts, but he will tell him the meaning of the dream. And he starts by giving him a history lesson. He reminds him of Nebuchadnezzar's greatness. He, he tells him that as great as Nebuchadnezzar was, Nebuchadnezzar came to recognize that his greatness was a gift from God, the most high God gave. You know, powerful people, 
Rich people, famous people, they, they make this mistake all the time. They think their power and wealth and fame come from their strength and intelligence and beauty. But you know, the truth is always the same, always the same. The most high God gave. Belshazzar hasn't learned that. And I just need to ask you, have you? Have you learned that? Daniel continues speaking in verses 20 and 21. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, as great as Nebuchadnezzar was, he said, God deposed him. He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Do you know why Daniel is a man of such great courage? We've been seeing this the entire time in this book. I've been telling you about it every single week. It's out of every single chapter. It's the central theme of the entire book. Daniel has such great courage because God is in control and he trusts in that. He believes that. He says, God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Do you believe that today? With our national election looming on Tuesday? Do you believe God is in control? Will you believe that God is in control just as much on Wednesday if the person you don't want to get elected gets elected? Will you rejoice in God on Wednesday no matter what? Will your heart still be at peace? I ask these questions very seriously. They're not just theoretical, abstract questions. In fact, I'd really like to encourage you to turn them into first-person questions and write them down, those last two questions. Will I rejoice in God? Why don't you write that down? Will my heart still be at peace? Why don't you write that down? And if the person next to you is not writing that down because their heart is stubborn and full of pride, you reach over there and you write it on their, their notes for them. We need to ask that question. Are you asking yourself that question? And I just want to say this, and you know, if this is you, you take it and you listen to it. I don't know who this applies to, but God does. You do if you hear it. Some of us need to repent over our lack of faith. God is sovereign. God is in control. And friends, that means that God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, to whoever he wants, for whatever purpose he wants. God is in control. And you know, one of the things that the Bible makes very clear, we see it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, all across the Bible's pages, is that God sometimes sets over a nation, even over his people, wicked rulers. Sometimes that's part of God's sovereign plan. Sometimes, as we're seeing so clearly in Daniel, God's people must learn to follow God in a culture that is hostile to God and that is hostile to God's people. And so will we follow faithfully even when our culture demands we compromise our faith? Will we cave in to the cultural pressure of the moral revolution all around us because, you know, we don't really want to be on the wrong side of history? See, all around us right now, you know this, we are being told, all of us are, we are being told that some things are right and good, some things that no one who's ever followed God has ever seen as right and good, not for thousands of years. 
Will we bow the knee only to God, only believing that God is sovereign? Notice Belshazzar praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We don't, we don't have too many of those kind of gods these days. Our culture worships different gods. Our culture worships at the altar of individual autonomy, and it is such a pervasive faith in our culture that many of us drink it in and we don't even realize it. And we are told all the time in many, many different ways, we're all gods. I determine my life. I determine my identity. I do what I want. God cannot tell me who I am or how I should live or what I should do. And so the question comes to us as God's people, will we trust God's word to tell us what's true or will we trust our culture? Will we trust our peers? And there are some of us I'm sure who have already maybe even given in, even in our thinking, maybe even some of the things that we now believe because of what our culture is saying out of our culture's worship. Maybe God is even now reaching out to you and calling you to trust him, calling you to learn from him, calling you to see that his ways alone are good and loving and life-giving. There's one other thing I want you to see in this section you need to be aware of. Um, all the time. And it's this, earthly leaders or Babylon will always make very, very empty promises. And here's what I'm saying. Belshazzar is offering Babylonian riches to Daniel while the conquering army of Darius is sitting outside, just outside the city walls. We actually know a lot about this chapter historically from other historical records. We know that this day was actually October 12, 539 B.C., This is the exact day that this happened. You know what was happening outside the city walls that the writer of Daniel doesn't record for us? The the army that was outside the walls um, is making plans to come through. And the way they they did this was the Euphrates River ran through the center of the city of Babylon. It had walls built over it. You couldn't go through, but they went upstream, diverted part of the river until the flow was low enough that the army could just walk into the city under the walls. And in one night, Babylon the Great is captured. Babylon the Great falls. It's all over. Just like God said, you remember in Daniel earlier, the head of gold will not last. So don't compromise your integrity when judgment looms. Here's the second thing you should do when God's judgment looms. Don't ignore what God has already taught you. In verses 22 and 23, Daniel is still speaking, and now he directs his fire basically straight at Belshazzar. He says, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Now, Daniel is speaking so forcefully to Belshazzar. And he says in these words, one of the most arresting phrases in scripture, you should underline it. It's just two words. Daniel says to Belshazzar, you knew, you knew. See, it's bad enough that the king did such stupid and wicked things. It's worse that he knew better. 
God had given him as a young man a front row seat to all that had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew that what Nebuchadnezzar had was given to him by God. He knew the penalty for pride and arrogance. He knew who God was. He knew what God wanted, and he still chose death. Daniel says, you knew. But don't we all have a tendency to do this? Don't we avoid responsibility for knowing the truth sometimes because, you know, we want to do what we want to do? A few years ago, Dana and I flew out to Tennessee to see our oldest son, Jared, who was in the the middle of his first semester in college, a long way away from home, and and we wanted to see him. And so we rented a car and we got there. We spent a couple of days visiting with uh, some of Dana's family, and then we took a a several-hour drive to get to where Jared was to see him. And it was this beautiful fall morning, and we were cruising uh, down kind of a rural state highway. It's not very crowded, going in and out of small towns. It was wonderful. You know, it's wonderful to drive without a lot of traffic. Amen? And uh, we don't get that too often around here. And uh, as we left one town, you know, you're kind of going at speed, then you just drive through a town, you speed up. And so we went through this town, came out of it on the other side of it, and I sped up to highway speed. I wasn't really watching where I was. And before I knew it, I look across this highway, and you know, two lanes on each side of the pretty wide, grassy area between, and I see a state trooper. And as I look over at him as I'm going by, he's across the road. He points at me and goes like that. And I knew that he was coming, and he flipped around behind me, and so I slowed down, pulled over, and waited. And I watched him come up, and he was kind of classic Southern trooper, you know. I think his name was Bubba. Um, <laughs> maybe Leroy, I don't remember for sure. And he informed me that I'd been going 65 in a 45 mile zone. And I looked ahead of me, and not too far, just a couple hundred yards down the road, I could see the 65 mile an hour sign. See, I'd assumed that the limit had changed, but it hadn't. And I thought to myself, you know, this is Tennessee. There's a good chance he's a Baptist, and maybe I should tell him I'm a pastor. (laughs) And, you know, like I was in prayer and just giving worship and praise to God, and I kind of got lost in the moment, and I didn't really notice. I didn't do that. But I did mention that I hadn't realized the speed hadn't changed yet, that limit. And now, here's what he did not say to me. He did not say, oh, you didn't know. Well, it's okay then. I mean, I thought you knew and you were speeding anyway. That would be a real problem. But, you know, in light of this new information, you can go now, be free, enjoy your day. He didn't say that. Even though I didn't know, even though I really wasn't going all that fast in that situation, you know, just 20 miles above the limit, even though there really wasn't anyone else on the road as far as the eye could see, just us and Bubba, even though... Even though justice came my way that day. See, of course, the truth is I've been driving long enough to know on a highway like that the speed limits change and I should pay attention. The truth is I wasn't paying attention. See, the thing is, when judgment comes, a strategy of saying, you know, I'll close my eyes, I'll avoid looking at the signs, I'll claim ignorance, well, that's not a real good plan. Belshazzar didn't want to know. 
So he closed his eyes. He didn't want to see the signs. So he pretended that what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar had nothing to do with him. And he, he just threw another party, just drank a little more wine, just blew a little more money, just committed a little more immorality, just to keep his mind off of it. But deep down inside, he knew. This is one of the greatest spiritual dangers that any of us can face. You might call it strategic avoidance. We avoid thinking about or reading about or talking about or dwelling on or looking at anything that might convict us or cause us pain or call us to change. And what is staggering about this for some of us is this. I know what's right. I know God is judge. I know Jesus died for my sin. I know the the pain that my sin causes God and the people that are in my world, these people he loves so much, and I still sin. I still sin. I want to be very direct, very personal for a moment. Is there any area in your life where you know that you've been closing your eyes? Maybe you're a mom or a dad, and maybe like a lot of people in our culture, your idol is work. You've been making work an idol, and your children are shriveling up inside. You're you're losing them a little more every day, but you keep real busy. You stay away from friends who might speak truth to you. You avoid thinking about reality. You don't look at any of the signs. But deep down, right now, you know. Maybe you're someone who just lets your anger fly. You use words that draw blood. Your words drip with sarcasm or contempt, and you just ignore the hurt look in the eyes of your spouse, the eyes of your kids, maybe even your coworkers, because you don't want to know. And this goes on day after day, week after week. You never admit you have a problem, though it's leaking out of you all the time. You never seek the help you need. You pretend it's all good, but deep down inside, you know. Maybe, maybe you've compromised with the world's thinking and maybe you're accepting and believing things today that you would have never thought possible for you just a few years ago. Maybe you've done it because everyone in the culture you know says that it's right, but you know what God's word says. Deep down inside, you know. See, we've seen that this call to humility in Daniel 4 and 5 to Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar specifically involves doing justice and helping the poor. But our world that we live in in suburban America is kind of designed to uh, keep us insulated, to keep us from seeing the needs of people who are not as fortunate as us so we can pretend like there really aren't problems. But we know, we know. You know, I could keep going for a long time, but I think you get the point in what areas do you know, but you're closing your eyes. Daniel 5 would tell you whatever it is, wherever it is, don't close your eyes. Belshazzar knew better. He knew a day of reckoning was coming one day, and now it had, and now it's too late. Here's the third thing you should do when God's judgment looms. Don't live in spiritual denial. Look at verses 24 through 28. Daniel is still speaking. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, many, many, tikal, parson. And this is what these words mean, many, 
God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, God writes three words on the wall, and there's a kind of a wordplay involved here. Uh, in the ancient world, they, they love this sort of thing. These three words, they have, they have a, a kind of double meaning. Each word at its most basic level represents a unit of measure. You could think of it like you know, pound or ounce or, and half ounce. And each word implies that Belshazzar has been measured and evaluated. But each word also has another meaning. Each word serves to puncture an illusion that Belshazzar is clinging to, an illusion that makes him possible for him to live in spiritual denial. Let me show you the words that appeared on the wall because they, they reveal three illusions that we often believe. Now, the first word is mene, numbered. And, and the illusion here is this. It's my life. My life belongs to me. A lot of people think this. Belshazzar thought, I'm the king. I'm free to do whatever I want to. I'm responsible to no one else. And the truth is, God is saying to him, you're responsible to me. I've numbered your days, Belshazzar. Now, even though he is about to die, this statement is not mainly about chronology. It's more about theology. It's a theological statement. Belshazzar, it's not just your life. You are where you are because God created you and God gifted you and God put you in a place to do work for him from this little time you are on this earth. And the irony is, Belshazzar, you thought that as king you were accountable to no one, but you are accountable in reality to a greater king, the Lord, most high God. Daniel Webster was a famous senator in the 19th century. He's where we get our dictionary from. And he was asked one time, what's the most profound thought that ever crossed your mind? And he said, man's accountability to God. Every human being, friend, every human being that walks the faith of this earth will one day stand accountable in the presence of a holy God. And it is a huge illusion in our day. It may be the great illusion of our day is it's my life. I can do what I want. But the truth is, I've been given this one life from the God who made me, and I will one day stand before that God and give an account to that God of what I did with this life. Truth is, the sacred vessel in this moment that Belshazzar was profaning most was not gold and silver goblets. It was his life, his soul. God has numbered your days. And then there's a second word, tekel. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And there's an illusion here, and the illusion is it's possible if I'm clever enough or strong enough or powerful enough that I can get away with wrongdoing. It's possible to get away with it. I'll put it this way. I can get away with sin. We have that illusion. And this is an illusion and a belief that really is deeply rooted in, in human nature. And if you have never seen it in yourself, that just means you are blind and, and not paying attention to this. It's part of all of us. I know of someone whose family, when he was growing up, had a cookie jar in the kitchen. And mom had very strict rules about the cookie jar. You only got cookies when you were given permission. All the kids knew it was off limit. The, the, the cookie jar rule always got enforced. And then he said one day, a younger brother, the baby of the family came along. 
And this baby of the family had a habit. At a certain stage in his life, he would go into the kitchen. And when he got into the kitchen and he wanted a cookie, he would close his eyes because at that stage in his development, he thought if he couldn't see anything, nobody else could see anything. And so he would stumble around with his eyes closed until he found the cookie jar. He'd get the lid off. He'd reach in, take a cookie, put the lid back on, and stumble back out of the kitchen with his eyes closed the whole time. And this guy said his parents, who never let any of the older kids take any cookies without permission, would watch. And not only they would not punish him, but they would laugh themselves silly because they thought it was so cute. I mean, aren't babies of the family disgusting? I'm, I'm the oldest in my family, if you haven't guessed. You know, it's pretty amazing. Even even in the church, even among Christ followers, when we sin, so many times I see this, the biggest fear that people have is that someone might find out that somehow this might damage my reputation, that somebody might talk, that people might not think well of me. So I'm going to keep it a secret. Then it'll be okay. Do you understand that it really doesn't matter what anyone knows because the one person that matters the most, he already knows, and his name is the Most High God. God knows everything. Belshazzar was not much more in touch with reality than that little boy and his cookies, and he just closes his eyes to spiritual reality. He just takes whatever he wants from the cookie jar. He just thinks he's gotten away with it. But God comes to him, and God says, you've been weighed, friend. If you think my eyes are too weak to see, if you think my mind is too dim to know what's happening on earth, if you think you've got away, gotten away with defying my authority, you are badly mistaken because I have seen every action, I have heard every word, I have monitored every thought. You have been weighed on the scales. You have been found wanting. This is very serious business. This is the judgment of God. And then a third word, Paris or broken, I mean, just think, these three words to sum up this life, numbered, weighed, broken. God says, your kingdom is broken or divided and taken away from you. And and again, there's an illusion involved here. The illusion is this, my life will go on the way I want it to go on for as long as I want it to go on. And yeah, maybe there are some things in my life or my character that need addressing, but you know, there will be plenty of time, plenty of time to get getting around to dealing with those things, you know, when I'm good and ready. And that's the illusion. I have plenty of time to repent. And God says to Belshazzar what he says to another rich guy in the New Testament, you fool. You fool. This is your night. Your life will be demanded of you tonight. Your kingdom will be broken. Now who's going to get all that stuff? See, all you are guaranteed is this moment. You have just this one life to do what God calls you to do, and you have no idea how many more days you have. Just one life, just one life to do what Nebuchadnezzar did, humble yourself and ask for forgiveness of sin. And so Daniel says to Belshazzar, King, this is your last night on earth. Your whole life has been numbered up to this point, and this is the end. And Daniel says that, and then Daniel is silent. And we're wanting to know We're asking, what happens next? What does Belshazzar say? How does he respond? We wait for him to do what Nebuchadnezzar did, raise his eyes toward heaven, humble himself and submit to God. 
We wait for him to do what the prodigal son did in Luke 15, to come to his senses, to fall on his knees in repentance. We wait for him to do what the thief on the cross did as he hung next to Jesus, to throw up a final prayer, to realize his desperation, to repent of his sin, and to beg for God's mercy. But it's just silent in the room. Belshazzar never says a word. These are the last three verses of Daniel 5. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Belshazzar dies, alienated from the God of heaven, the Most High God, And the writer just lets his life stand in stark contrast to Daniel 4 and Nebuchadnezzar. He wants us to hear this severe warning that is given to anyone who refuses to humble himself before God and to repent of his sin. So I would just like to ask you to think, as you look at these words, to think about your final night, which will come one day for you and for me, You know, most of us in this room are Christ followers, but there may be some of us today who've never placed their trust in Christ. Maybe you're here exploring. Maybe you're here checking things out. Maybe you're here wondering if this is really true. And I just want to say to you, if you are not a Christian, you need to know what we believe. And what we believe is this, not one of us measures up to God's standards. Every one of us is weighed in the balance, and found wanting. That's why God sent his son Jesus to die, to pay the penalty for our sins that we could never pay for ourselves. And and through Jesus' death, God offers us forgiveness. That's, That's all we are, forgiven sinners. See, if you understand this, and if you ask, then you can receive that same forgiveness. You can turn from your sin. You can turn in repentance and you can turn to God in faith, trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. And you can do it right now. You can do it today. Now, for those of us who are Christ followers, we don't need to worry about our eternal destiny. We have that gift of of peace and grace. But I do want to ask us this. What if the writing were to be on your wall today? What if you were to find out that your days were numbered and coming to an end? Do you have any unfinished business? Is there anything you need to take care of? I thought this story captured something about a lot of uh, of our attitudes toward death. It's from Max Dupree. Many of you know he's the business leader and a writer, and his dad lived to be almost 100 years old. And when his dad was 98, he broke his leg and and had to have surgery. He was in the hospital for the first time in his life at the age of 98. A couple of days later, Max got a call, and and his dad, he was told, was sitting in a chair, and and there were nurses around him, and and he was refusing to to go to bed. Max got down there, and and there were four nurses there, and the nurses told, told Max, your dad will not go to bed. He's exhausted, and he needs to sleep, but he will not leave the chair. And so Max went to see his dad still in the chair, and he said, how are you doing, dad? And his dad said, I'm tired. And Max said, how long have you been sitting in that chair? He said, a couple hours. 
Max said, the nurses tell me you won't go back to bed. That's right. Why not? Well, because the minute I get in that bed, I'm going to die. Max said, well, then there's no hurry, is there, Dad? Nope. And so they talked a while. A little later, Max tried again. Now, now what do you think, Dad? You want to go to bed? No. If I get in that bed, I'll die. Max said that they had that conversation four times. Finally, Max said, Dad, you have told me for years that you're ready to die. His dad said, sure, but not today. Not today. How about you? I leave you with this question today, and I'm not going to soften it. It's the question, do you have any unfinished business? If it should turn out that this day would be numbered your last, and one of these days it will be, is there something you know ought to be taken care of? Some of you have someone in your life you need to forgive, and you still haven't done it. You're putting it off. You're refusing to. Start now. Some of you have a real deep regret. You've wounded someone else, and you need their forgiveness, but you've never asked. Will you today? Maybe you need to change patterns in your marriage or patterns in your parenting. Maybe you you need to finally get serious about addressing a sinful habit that is tearing your life apart. Maybe, maybe it's something about Tuesday and this election and the future of our nation. Whatever it is, will you get serious with God? Will you deal with unfinished business? Will you trust God is in control One day God judges, and none of us knows when our lives will come to an end. I want to encourage you to bow your head now as we pray. And in our time of praying, I want to encourage you to submit your life to this God who loves you, this God who sent his son to die for you. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Together, we're going to remember how God the Father sent God the Son to this earth to die on the cross for our sin. And we're going to celebrate grace. We're going to celebrate forgiveness. We're going to celebrate eternal life. We're going to give thanks to God again. So as you're praying, as you're asking God's Holy Spirit to speak to you, whatever truth you need to hear coming out of this part of God's word, will you listen to him and will you obey? Father God, We give you thanks today for your word, which cuts to the heart and shows us where we need to change. And Lord, you know how this applies to each of our lives. I ask you, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak so clearly to each person here. And I ask you, Father, that each person here will listen and will obey. Lord, I pray especially for anyone here this morning who needs to trust in you through your son. Lord, open their eyes, grant salvation to them today for the sake of your son. Lord, you are sovereign, you are in control, and we thank you that we can have peace. We thank you that we can rest when this world is just going crazy all around us. We don't have to be afraid. We ask these things all now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said.